Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Okay, so um, let's start out with this uh, calendar. Yes thing that I have. So uh, this is from the Cooper Review, which I think is Sarah Cooper, who's a comedian. She has this daily calendar and it's been forever since I had, you know, one of those peel off daily calendars. But Because who just, uses those? <laughs> but hers was so good. I had to get it. And so this was from January 12th, uh, her tricks to appear smart in meetings. Uh, and so this one is ask, will this scale no matter what it is? <laughs> No one even really knows what this means, but it's a good catch-all question that drives everyone nuts and definitely makes you look smart. But will it scale? So is the whole calendar tricks to appear yeah, smart in meetings? Yeah, the whole calendar meetings? is tricks okay. to appear smart in meetings. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's probably a bunch of things. This is very Dilbert-esque, you yeah. know, because they do things like, you know, they throw things out there that... Yeah. And, and it's... Um, it throws you off topic, but it's hard to argue that it's important. It's like, how do you say, doesn't matter? You yeah. know, what, it's, there's a bunch of questions. That well, you and say. scaling seems really important. So, yeah, you, uh, that was inspired, bringing that was inspired by, uh, you have been thinking about um, kind of management, which has been just a, a ongoing topic of exploration for you but um what one thing that i've experienced a lot in management whenever you question how management is done how businesses are organized and all that very often the question is uh the the um you know my feedback into into how management works very often the response is but will that scale it's uh pretty common that's windows telling me that my firewall is off oh that's that's very um you know kind of <laughs> adventurous adventurous yes but will it scale and well i hadn't thought about that and now i'm not thinking about the main thing but i'll now now we've we've diverted ourselves from trying to solve the problem and yeah yeah, so so it's it's interesting to me how I've actually experienced this Willis scale uh, a number of times, and and you're right that it 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 it's something that is you can't you can't then respond to the will it scale question and be like, does it matter? Does it need to scale? Is that important? Is because of course it's important. <laughs> yeah, what if this thing becomes successful, and suddenly a lot of, and we've had that. I mean, that used to be the re like, if you wanted to launch an app, you had to create your own server farm. And so scaling was the whole thing. And now we have the cloud and you could say the whole point of the cloud is so that you can answer that question. It's not a problem. Yeah. yeah. Yes. The answer is yes, it will scale because we're doing it in the cloud and we can Maybe. just add more. It so, well, if you, yeah, that's true. It's your, your technology has to be cloud oriented in order yeah. to make it scale. I think one thing that I don't know if we've ever discussed on the podcast, but definitely a topic that you and I have a lot is the idea of phase changes, how sometimes there are things that work at a certain size that don't work at another size that don't work at another size. And, and this is true for 
organizational things, uh, communication related things, but also certainly systems. And so I've, I've definitely been in the place where I'm building something with a, a given amount of needed scale in mind and knowing that, that what the way that I'm doing things is probably not going to work at some other level because I'm going to go through one of those phase changes. So like knowing that it won't scale, but there's, I think that it's okay to like, be like, okay, this is for this scale and this approach is for this scale and this approach is for this scale. Like thinking that you should build something for a small departmental application with 10 users that needs to scale to hundreds of millions of users. Like that, that just, you, you, shouldn't need to do that. Well, I think this is what happened with Ruby on Rails is that it was so easy to solve the problem of putting up a, you know, some kind of web system that, which was great and people, you know, could experiment very quickly with it, but they hadn't originally, I think it's better now but it's kind of gone off my radar. I think it's gone <laughs> off a lot of people's radar. It's not a, it, it I thought you were going to say gone off the rails. <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah. And I think maybe that was, you know, when we saw a lot of like Twitter, I think started with Ruby on rails, didn't it? Oh, maybe it did. I think so. I mean, there were some sites GitHub, that have I since think. become big yeah. and then there was this, Pure, there, there was this place where they were going, okay, we have to move away from Rails because it doesn't yeah. serve our needs anymore and move to this other thing. And that was, uh, you, you know, so a lot of people say, it, oh, well, Rails doesn't work. And you could argue, well, it does work. Maybe it only Given works the, right. the small to the medium yeah. scale. And then, you know, you're making enough money maybe at that time that you can hire yeah. people to make a more scalable solution and switch to that. Yeah. And I guess it's that there's like a premature, uh, optimization, premature, uh, scaling that, that can definitely happen where people spend so much time building out the massively scalable system when they should have probably gone to market with the easier solution. And then later when, when they needed scaling, then handled it. And I know that like, that's hard for people to hear because it's like, no, we need to be ready for that moment uh, because certainly it is harder to do it later. But um, is it though? I mean, if you're able to very quickly change your system and experiment with it and everything versus a scalable solution might not be that way. Yeah. And so if you wait until you go, oh, this thing is pretty stable. Now we should switch over to the more scalable, solid, you know, software engineered solution, you may get great benefits by that. Well, and I guess you probably know like what needs to scale at that point. Mm -hmm. Whereas before you actually get there, you, you may not know what parts, where the bottlenecks are. So I think in a lot of ways, there's a lot of premature optimization that goes into the, the possible need to scale. Mm -hmm. Not that it's not that, you shouldn't always like, like I build a lot of stuff reactively just by default, uh, because, because I think that that's a better place to start so that when I do need to scale, I've already at least taken that piece and, and, uh, 
alleviated that bottleneck. Yeah, that's that's the conundrum because it's like if you're if you just use the right system from the beginning, then you don't have those. It's so tempting. So tempting to to say, well, yeah, let's. It, well, I mean, it's the decision thing again. It's like, well, let's front load our decision process and put the effort in. This is what I tend to do. I go, okay, I got to do research on everything so that I know that the decision I'm making is right. And it isn't necessarily, but I feel comfortable with it yeah. because I've like done all the research and seen all the things. And in the end, is it, you know, you, I mean, your approach of, of diving in and saying, well, let's take this technology and make something that works and we don't have to understand it thoroughly. We just need to get something working. And the amount that you learn in the process of doing that is really a lot, you know, and you, cause you get a feel for it. And if you're going to hit a wall, you find out yeah. by doing that. Whereas yeah. my approach is, well, I got to understand everything. Okay. Now I do. Now I'm building something. Oh, I hit the wall. And now maybe all the time that I invested in understanding that thing is I have a hard time saying that it's lost because I understand a new thing now. Yeah. But from a productivity standpoint, I can't argue. It's really hard to argue with your approach. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a desire from a lot of people in technology to find the like universal solution. And wouldn't it be nice if I could start with this, this thing and use it all the way up until the end of days, because it, it doesn't, uh, doesn't get impacted by the phase changes as needs change, but I've yet to actually see a technology that is, universal like that actually is a uh has the traits of something that you would need to be universally useful um i came across an article this morning i don't know where it was because i kind of dismissed it it was talking about why object-oriented programming is the is the bad solution and i thought oh well you know maybe there's some insights here and it started out by blaming object-oriented programming for, uh, I think, the 737 MAX plane crashes and any number of other things. It was like, yeah, the problem was object-oriented programming. And I'm going, oh, this this person is just going after, yeah. this is clickbait. This is not, there's yeah. no, no real thinking here. Yeah. Yeah, well, and uh, I don't think that object-oriented programming is a universal solution gosh no like there are places where where it doesn't work absolutely where, but to say that it is the cause of all crashes and yeah, everything that and that's like i mean it's like because i mean my orientation as i've gotten more and more into the functional world is um just use functions and then if something my experience has been that oh, there's something that's messy and ugly and everything. And eventually I realize, oh, this thing wants to be an object. And you make it an object and it's fine. But all the rest of the things are just, I mean, they work better as functions. Just occasionally you sprinkle in some objects. And you could argue, well, is it worth all the structure that we have and the inheritance and virtual functions and things like that in order to... And, and actually, when I go back 
historically, I look at even when we were working on C, when I was on the C++ committee and we were working on that, I remember it being something that, I mean, because C++ is a, a functional object hybrid language. You, you can just program with functions or you can put objects in. And I remember that you like Bjarne wanted to support objects and he saw the benefits of them. But I think the mechanism was so involved that it was easy to begin thinking like, I guess the Java designers did that objects should be everything mm. and how that infects uh, subsequent languages. You know, this idea that, well, you have to make an object and then you can call methods on the object. And there is no idea of a standalone function yep. in, in Java. And it's like that people learn that way and they, they have a really hard time letting go of it. Yeah. That's just their comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. It's it being, and, and then how it was absorbed by like universities, they go, Oh, finally we have your solution until the end of days. So we'll just teach Java for all four years of your undergraduate and, and people come but away with scale. <sighs> Yes, yes, it, it's the solution. You know, it's the solution to everything. Java, Java is the answer. Yeah. I think that's well. That, there's that thing again, and I labor under it. Of wouldn't it be nice if you could just make the decision, and it's done. You've put all the effort in, and you've made the right decision, and now you don't think about it anymore. You can go on. You can save your energy for future decisions. Yeah, and that would be great. So let's pretend that it's real. That's, that's pretend. That's right. Yeah, well, Cause I want it to be that way. That's so right. I'll pretend, I mean, this is, you know, you look at the entire business world and it's predicated on that. You know, yeah. they, they go, Oh, here's a thing. Economics is the, you know, well, at least it started that way before behavioral economics was, well, wouldn't it be great if we could write equations to predict the behavior of the economy. Uh, and so wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? So let's pretend it's true. Yeah. And then pff, you get all of economics, yeah. except for behavioral economics, when people started saying, Hey, this isn't working. Let's <laughs> right. see how people actually act. And then and 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 the other economic yeah, they realized that the pretending the pretending wasn't really working out. I mean, yeah. you end up with the laugher curve. Yeah, you end up with um, you know trickle down economics. It's all based on ah, this Wouldn't would this be, great. be great. This would really fit nicely with my worldview. So let's yeah. pretend it's true, and you know we'll push it, and then maybe that will make it true. Yeah, because sometimes that maybe works, or at least it works for a while. Of of saying <laughs> let's just believe it's true, you know. The uh, fake it till you make it approach to business. I <laughs> just I, I don't think it's even an approach. I think it's the foundation just, of it's. I guess you can believe something for so long and so strongly that that eventually it becomes true to you. Oh, you you internalize it to the point where you don't think about it. You go, well, of course. Um, I mean, Adam Smith's idea that people are lazy and they'll steal from you if you don't build a structure to prevent laziness and stealing. Uh, and then you create that structure and people go, well, screw this. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, uh, what do they call it? Bunk off. I think the British call it that huh. and, and steal office supplies. <laughs> and, uh, 
And because, because I don't, you know, I feel treated badly here. And that's the thing you're most afraid of clearly because you built your entire structure around it. Right. And then it becomes, and it's it like, becomes, well, look, yeah. they're doing that. Yeah. So it does actually become your reality. Yeah. Oh, it's so hard to sometimes absorb all this stuff because it's yeah. disappointing. I think it that's is. the thing. It's yeah. We have attachments to, to these things. It's like, uh, I, I have an attachment to uh, reactive as being a better way to program, even though it does make things harder. Hmm. But I am going to do everything reactively and I'm going to internally just like, like, like hate myself if I have to do something in a non-reactive way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we all have attachments to things that we think are better or things that we think are real or at least that you're comfortable with that might be the thing because if somebody comes along and presents you a better way i think you would look at it but you might wait a while before saying oh yeah this really is this this has benefits well you'd wait yeah. for evidence yeah you'd wait for and i mean there's certainly other things that uh you know one could look at and see are beneficial, but go, yeah, but is it beneficial enough? I don't know. I usually, the metric I usually say is to make an easy decision for change, you need to see like a, a multiple benefit. Like ideally if it's 10 times you go, oh, sure. You know, going from C to C plus plus, I felt like that was a 10 times huh. benefit yeah. from that and an assembly to C yep. for sure. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, so, you know, all of these different benefits and, and I think Java to Kotlin is probably that Yeah, you could just see, I had to write some Java recently. I'm it was, still, it was, uh, it was painful after spending so much time lately in Kotlin. Yeah. Um, well, I'm working on something for the Java eight book and it's, I don't know. I, I'm sort of at peace with it, be, mostly because, oh, this is a relatively small thing and I can just treat it as an intellectual mm -hmm. exercise. Whereas, you know, railing against the semicolons and the verbosity and all this kind of stuff is, yeah. it's kind of pointless. Yeah. It's like Java is what it is. Yeah. And there's a lot of people using it and they're comfortable with it. Yeah. And man, you know, when I think the last time I was in, I don't remember where I was, I was somewhere in, Europe speaking, uh, and, and I was talking about Kotlin, and it was a predominantly Java conference. And people were kind of rattled when when I said, okay, I think this is going to be the next big thing. They didn't want to hear that. Yeah. They wanted to hear Java is going to be forever the right. greatest thing in the world. And Attachments to our teddy bears that give us comfort. Well, and I like one person in particular who I'd known in past years who, who lives in Prague, I think. And he was going, well, I, I like Java and I'm comfortable with it, you know, and I don't want to see it change because, and, and, you know, you think, well, here's things in your life, like, and we have all of these other things now, you know, it's not just Java, it's version control, it's build systems, it's, um, you know, all the, all the extra things which are important and then you go in and start trying to pull the rug out from under Java and somebody's going to be hanging on to their teddy bear yeah. in that case. Yeah. 
and, and that's fine if yeah. you know if that's what they need well, yeah that's right what what works you know and it's yeah. like a company I, I was reading an article where this guy was making a case for, uh, I guess, when he started with this company and they were just dipping their toes into Kotlin, they were worried that they would be able to hire programmers th who would be able to do it. And he said, now it's, I don't know what, five years later. And now it's more, do we get programmers? Because we're maybe appealing to people who've been programming in Java and want something more. And if we just were to stick with Java, we might have a hard time hiring programmers. Hmm. And he also said that the, he had found that the, um, you know, coming up to speed curve was a lot less than people expected. Hmm. And then that makes sense. Cause you know, you, so much of it is the Java ecosystem. It's almost like the transition from yeah. C to C plus plus. There's a lot of it that, is pretty familiar mm -hmm. um i mean the syntax is different but all at least in my perception every difference in syntax is a benefit yeah so i remember going through this with the scala community where when i was at type safe a lot of people would ask uh how do i hire scala developers and because they were they wanted to adopt scala but were worried about finding scala developers and at that time there was very few people, Scala developers out there looking for jobs. And so, so the recommendation was hire great Java developers and teach them Scala. And, mm -hmm. and that worked really well for a lot of people. So I think now probably Kotlin is in that same, same boat. Um, with, but I think the, the barrier is a lot lower. Yeah. yeah Cause for sure. I think, I mean, Scala has so many things that yeah. are not. Yeah. Oh, the learning curve. Is yeah, the learning curve. For than for Kotlin. Yeah, and but either way, you can start as a Java developer and sure, and go to Kotlin or and Scala it's kind of, of a, the ecosystem. It's a good saying. filter too because you're going to get people who go, "Yes, I I want, I'm interested in learning Scala," versus people who go, "No, I just want another Java job." And yeah. you want the ones who. Yeah. want to learn the, the new, yeah. the new thing. Yeah. So we were talking, um, at coffee this morning about hiring and yes, it was interesting to think about hiring people is fitting with that same thing of, we do all this interview process because we believe that it's, that it's effective and works. We are going to pretend that it is, uh, against evidence, against, against evidence. mountains of evidence. Yep. Yeah. And I think like reviews, OKRs, like a lot of that stuff is the same. What OKRs? Uh, I forget what it stands for. It's like the way that you, you state what you're going to do in a given like quarter or, or a year or whatever. And, and how your, do you know that? Um, there's a way that you put that. Oh, how do you know? what? How do you gonna, know what you're going to do in a quarter? Well, management needs to know. And so. And why, why do they need to know? Uh, because will it scale? And so they can plan. That's right. So they can plan. Yeah. And, and control, is that, the illusion of control. The illusion of control. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so hiring, whether it's hiring or, or review systems or whatever, I think we, we organizationally have a lot of illusion, illusions of control, a lot of beliefs that these systems work. Um, yeah. And like you said, like without, with evidence that tells us that they basically don't. Oh yeah. I, I think there's one, uh, 
I, I thought I came across something, this was years ago, that, that kind of declared that interviewing is probably the worst way that you could hire somebody. But then people go, well, what's the alternative? Yeah. And uh, the, a lot of the stuff that I've been studying basically says, I mean, the foundation is kind of that you have to give up the illusion of control because you don't have control and you have to give that up. But all of the business school stuff and everything is selling you the illusion of control. Huh. I mean, I think a lot of people in the business schools know that that's not true, but yeah. but it's kind of like, well, it's sort of like interviewing. Well, what else would we do in business schools? Well, this is what we sell. So if you take away that illusion of control, then how can we stay in business? Well, yeah. a lot of business schools are going out of business because yeah. um, people don't really believe in them anymore, yeah. you know, because so many of the decisions that are made are business school decisions and they don't work. Yeah. I guess the whole uh, MBA program thing is really just giving you a worldview that you can control everything. That there, are, these are the knobs and here's how to turn them and here's what turning them will do. And here's how to, yeah, just have a whole hierarchy. Of there are levers. Control. Yeah. Well, and the honest business schools will say, well, yeah, what you're really getting is the networking. They're, they're not admitting that they're teaching you, what's the word, uh, bullshit? Uh, can we say bullshit? Sure. Okay. We can say anything we want. Well, we can say anything we want, but you know, I I don't want to yeah. offend anyone. Yeah, I don't want to um, offend people. It's not helpful. But but I mean that you know they know that they're doing it, and so what they what they do is they try and cast the spotlight on the good things, which is the networking. Oh. But if that's true, then why not? just design i mean it's kind of like what we do with the win, with the winter tech forum yeah it's like well i mean we, we don't use the term networking but it's really more about relationship um, building yeah, yeah. relation i mean i don't even want to say that 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 it's I, not the goal, I, but. I feel skeezy saying that yeah. oh yeah we're here to because because anytime people you know you have networking events or whatever and you're supposed to go around and give what is the goal of the winter tech forum you know, I guess loosely, it's just. I, Does it need to have a goal? No, well, no, I don't think it needs. To, but I mean, really, it's we're getting together with other people who like technology and we're talking about that. But that's not what happens. What happens is actual person-to-person, -person, legitimate person-to-person -person connection. Yeah. You know, we make, because like we've had, you've, you've been there at times when people, like at the end of the week, people get really emotional about having to go back to their regular world because we've created this, I don't know, I guess I would Place call where it people feel connected and valued. And okay, here's the thing. Cause I've been to burning man four times. I would call it a mini burning man for technologists. Yeah. You know, it, it it's as close, which is, uh, what do they, what do they say? The goal of burning man is radical creative expression, something, something like that. Radical yeah. creative expression. And I feel like, yeah, that's maybe, you know, without giving it a lot more thought, I would yeah. say, well, that's what happens. That's what happens. You know, yeah. it's almost like behavioral economics rather than saying, oh, here's our goal. 
here's our mission statement or whatever. Say, here's what happens. We, we get together. We remove as many constraints as we possibly. Mm-hmm. We only leave the constraints on that help the process yeah. and not the ones that are trying to control it. It's interesting that I, um, my brain, and this is probably cultural and whatever, but my brain goes to like, what are the goals when it's a totally different way to look at something, not as goals, but as what happens (laughs) and, and goals are maybe also a way to have an illusion of control. Cause if I state my goal, then I can like have an illusion that then I can do things to get towards that goal. Whereas yeah, in the case of the Winter Tech Forum, maybe it's the wrong way to look at it as, as having a goal. Maybe, mm-hmm. like you said, it's just let's state what happens. And what happens is connection, artistic expression. Um, yeah, val- people feel valued. People work on things that that are interesting to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and notice that, you know, we, we remove all attempts at a goal like because when you create like during the hack day i I mean in my opinion the more fanciful and pointless the better you know it's like the the ones that we remember most are the ones that are just silly and yet they're doing oh i mean like i still remember the one that um who's the guy from Sweden or Norway or whatever did where he, he had created something where he could hold this red flag up in front of the camera and his slide bullet points would be projected on it. And then when he wanted to change slides, he would just shake, he would just shake the, the, the piece. And it's like, that is ridiculous. And it was awesome. I mean, I, it's stuck in my mind. There was a bunch of things. It's true. We, we have done some really quirky, just silly things. Yeah, totally like frivolous. The, uh, and they're great. The, shot dis- the IoT shot dispenser. It was like a whiskey That's right, shot that dispenser. You, that you I didn't were... work on that one. Oh, you didn't? I provided some of the IoT gear. but Okay. Um, the one that sticks in my mind, it was super fun for me. This is back in the Flex days, was the Flex had a library for QR code detection. Uh. And so I uh, hooked up a scroll bar to a QR code and I was able to like scroll the page by like moving the QR code. But I think for some reason during the demo, I couldn't use my hands or they're occupied I don't know, typing or something. So I put the QR code on my forehead and then was like nodding my head up and down to scroll the page. <laughs> I remember that was, funny. I know. And it's like you, I love it when you're backed into a corner and you have to come up with a solution that you wouldn't do, but out of desperation, you go, I'll just stick it on my forehead because yeah. it works. And then you start thinking about that and you go, what else could we do now that we've broken that yeah. barrier of ridiculousness? What could we do that takes it and yeah. makes it useful? Yeah. Yeah. It's, we've done a lot of ridiculous projects. We have. The years. And they're just fun. You yeah. know, they're just, nobody's going, does this scale or does this, you know, is this productizable or any of those things? They're just going, that's cool. And that's all we, that's the only uh, metric that we care about is, is, is this interesting? It's funny. The, the not memorable ones were the ones that were, that I had a goal. Like, I don't, you know, they're hard to remember because I, 
you know, something that wasn't something fun. It was something like, all right, I got to get to here. Mm-hmm. Those are the hack projects that I just don't even remember. Cause, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you had it a goal. Inspire. You had a, didn't inspire. yeah. You don't have the freedom of taking the other path. When you reach a point you go, Oh, it be, looks interesting. Down. Oh, I have this goal. I have to get to. Yeah. 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 That's well. And I remember when we did the um, hackathon, what, what the theme of the conference was, which is kind of a goal, but fortunately we don't, we go, ah, this is just our theme in case anybody asks, but yeah. we don't, nobody has to do anything about this. Don't, don't worry about this. Um, but we were doing uh, machine learning and I have to say that like broke my brain open about so many things. The thing is, I realized I hadn't really understood science, even though I studied physics as an undergraduate. And I can go back to that and go, oh, here's why physics didn't make sense. You know, this is why all the equations and everything didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand them from like the machine learning standpoint. And once we did like some little simple thing, I don't know if it was predicting coin flips or something Uh using machine learning. I don't even remember what it was. And we didn't you know, I, I, we barely got something working and I don't think it worked well, but the process just made me realize, oh, we're building a model here and it's a model that's more complicated than what we can do in physics because we have to have everything Mm -hmm. in our equations. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it just, it just uh, released me from so many preconceptions that I had about everything. Yeah. I, speaking of physics, I was listening to uh, an NPR um, show recently. I think it was maybe on Bean, and Krista Tippett was interviewing a physicist who won the physics Nobel Prize, whatever, recently. And um, and he was talking about how, in his approach to physics, he likes to find the beautiful, uh, elegant solutions, and for him. He was saying that like dark matter has long been a challenge to him because dark matter is not the like elegant, beautiful solution. It's messy. Yeah. And so he's so so one of his driving things is like, like, okay, there's got to be a more beautiful, elegant and, and not meaning universal, because that's something that a lot of. And maybe back to our previous topic about finding universal solutions in physics, that's definitely like haunted a lot of people like oh there's got to be some universal thing here and we've never really found the universals and why does there have to be that you know what i mean why right seriously yeah so so he he made sure to like say that that beautiful and elegant doesn't mean universal Mm -hmm. um because i think there is definitely some people think that those are are the same well the unified field theory that people have always chased you know oh it's got to be there it's got to be there And then like when you dig into quantum mechanics and it's like, oh, well, this thing happens. So we just made up a particle for it. It seems really ad hoc. It just seems like, wow. So you're just making stuff up to make your equation work. And then when you look at machine learning, you go, that's exactly (laughs) what we're doing. That's what we've always been doing. All we care about is particles to make something, the equation work. The equation work. Is it, you know, can we predict it? Uh, is, does it, does it fit the data and does it create predictability? And if it does, then your equation works, but it's very, um, pragmatic. It isn't seeking some sort of elegance. 
And yeah, I mean, like when you create a software design, I mean, I want it. I, I love elegance. Yeah. Uh, me too. I, I really I... want a design, but I'm having to explain it to people. But now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going, you know, there are times when uh, maybe that's not, I mean, for the longest time before Python had uh, optional static typing, um, it was like, it works. I get things done fast. I, I solve my mm. problems quickly. I don't know if they scale, but <laughs> but they get my problem done. And it's like, that puts a hole in the hole. Is this elegant? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think elegance is something that we balance against other needs. Um, obviously it has to work, mm -hmm. uh, but there are a lot of times where, or you I just get... have to believe it works. Maybe it doesn't actually have to work. Maybe you just have to believe you're doing the right thing. I've seen a lot of software that people believe works that certainly does not. Um, mm -hmm. just, just this week I was, I was touching like five different pieces of technology all at the same time. And all of them were broken. I'm just like, ugh, like. This is so it's not like business and management it, software actually should work, I believe. Yeah, I mean, um, but it should also be written elegantly and architected elegantly. So people can understand it if they need to make it change. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think maybe it is about understanding. Maybe that is the, in the wor world of software, that's the reason for the desire for elegance is, is well, the understandability. And there's also this thing that I've talked about for years, which I call the vector of change, which is you, I mean, like, why do you design a piece of software a particular way is because you expect it to change in a particular direction. Mm. And so you'll say, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to add more pets to our system. So we need a base class pet. We derive everything from pets. Now, when we add a new pet, everything's easy. You know, I mean, polymorphism in general is that yeah. it's like, okay, you want to be able to use pet everywhere and not worry about the specific pet. So that's your vector of change. But what if you don't, then you've designed your whole system around that. And so there's that illusion of control thing again. You yeah. go, oh, I know how this is going to change in the future. And then your customer comes along or your stakeholder comes along and says, or COVID comes along. <laughs> COVID comes along. Something, something in the world comes along and it doesn't fit the way you've designed things. Yeah. And now suddenly your system is hacky yeah. because you're going in and you're making a change over here and it doesn't fit the way you assumed yeah. And I think when they were initially talking about, because before we had Agile, we had uh, extreme programming, XP. Mm -hmm. yep. And that was their whole thing was, you know, you're, you're, uh, you want to be able to make changes. You don't, you don't want to be putting all of your effort in the, the beginning and then later, you know, assuming that, okay, the curve is steep here and then it flattens out. You want to be able to make changes relatively effortlessly anywhere along that curve because yeah. that's what you're going to do it's going to happen yeah you can't predict the if future you want a, a consistent cost to those changes versus with the waterfall model the cost just increases 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 you it. have to do it you have to make all the decisions up front yeah, that's right. there's that yeah. thing again that belief that you and the belief that you can figure everything out front is so 
intrinsic. And I think we all carry that with us and don't question it. Because if you were to say, I mean, even when I, because I suggested this idea to somebody else about hiring, which is what if you just, you know, you looked at your candidates and you drew a name out of a hat rather than doing any kind of interviewing. And this person's response was, well, I mean, there must be some things that you can do up front, like, and you start thinking about it and you go, well, yeah, I mean, like a basic programming test that that would make sense. Right. And but if you really think about it, well, what if there's a person who's an awesome programmer, but just tests freak them out? You're going to lose that. You're going to lose possibly the best person in your whole pool because you go, ah, I mean, we could predict that at least. What you're saying feels very scary because I can't control it. Mm hmm. Exactly. You're going, you mean you're just casting this whole thing to chance. And I'm saying, yeah. You already are casting all the chance you just aren't aware of. <laughs> or worse than that, you're, you're believe that you, that you aren't. Yeah. So uh, there's a book that I've started reading about decision-making and it points out that, I mean, there's, they actually have an exercise and they, they say, think back on, you know, a decision that you made and how did you judge the quality of the, you know, the validity of that decision? You base it on outcome and you, you hear that and you go, well, sure, of course you do. But this says, well, what you're not taking into account is chance or luck or all of these random external right. factors that affect it. So you can make that decision, those, deci- those factors that you're ignoring, affect the outcome and you go, ah, that was a good decision. And then you over here in alternate space, you make exactly the same decision. The factors push it in another direction. You go, oh, that was a bad decision. So it's like disconnected. Your decision criteria are disconnected from the outcome. But due to some cognitive bias, we believe that we can ignore those uh, external factors. Well, because and, we and can't control that, them. That's right. So let's pretend they don't exist. Let's pretend they don't exist and don't have any impact. But I remember you telling me a while ago about some business podcast you'd listened to a number of times. I don't know if it was Harvard Business Review or something, but um, there's a podcast where they would get a founder of some successful company on like every episode. And every episode, like the founder would say, here's the secret. Like I figured it out. Here's the reason why we were successful. And they're totally ignoring all of the probably way more uh, influential factors that actually led to their success. But they were all able to have the one thing that they could control that made them successful. Uh, the sta- it's, it's the Stanford... That's right, yeah. It, yeah, so, so it's like yeah. Stanford, which Start- can... It was like the Stanford startup. Something like that. It's they have a podcast and they invite. So what happens is they have all the Stanford students who can come to this thing, and because they're Stanford, they can pull you know really top end people. And so you're hearing people who like are clearly successful, and they come in and they explain their success, and then you listen to the next one, and the criteria for for how to do this is completely different, (laughs) and they never commented on it. But I feel like they were smart enough to realize that the students are going to pick up on this. You know, it's like, oh, uh, wait a minute. That guy said this. You're saying the opposite. 
I wonder what that means. <laughs> yeah, maybe nobody knows what they're talking about. Yeah, but they want to come. I mean, the whole deal of being a CEO or whatever is to give confidence to the shareholders, the the investors. Yeah, and. Yeah, and I and but I. But I'm in control, and I made the right decision, and therefore we were successful. Right, right, and and it, you know it's this whole shell game of believability uh, that you're, and and the thing is, this is built in to the whole business management delusion world, and it's it's really frustrating because this is a cultural, you know, this is a really tough ingrained belief system to to start to try and take apart well it seems like there's cognitive biases and uh and uh what do they call it when we have something that evolutionarily is a trait in our brain that causes us to act in certain ways i forget what the terminology is for that but but i know what you're talking about yeah uh so there's there's definitely it's i'm sure culture and all that stuff is just makes it so we're unaware of why we've done these things and why we have these beliefs. And... It becomes the the air, the water. Yeah. You know that this is water. Yeah. Uh, if you've if you've never heard that, uh, you have heard yeah. that thing. Oh, yeah. 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 So it's like you know what's he talking about water? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's so built in that nobody questions it. Everybody's basing what they're doing. On okay, we all understand that we can control the world, right? And how do you go in and say, let's pretend we can't control the world? And even if you do that in a little place, that's up. So when, like when the French Revolution happened, all of the surrounding countries were like super threatened by that, and they started putting armies together to go back and reestablish a monarchy in in france huh. and or or you look at uh socialism you know when that started happening of oh, you know all of the capitalist countries say oh this is a this is an existential threat to capitalism right. so we have to we have to do whatever we can you know the cold war was really yeah. our doing not yeah not the soviets yeah yeah. And, and because it's so deeply threatening. And so yeah. what I'm suggesting here is to say, well, what if we look at this, all of these things, what if we take that away, this idea that we can control things? I mean, even thinking about it myself, I go, well, what would life look like? That sounds, as you say, very scary, yeah. you know, because my world is built on this idea of determinism and that if I do if I pull these levers and set these things the right way, the the outcome will be certain. And science... The illusion is very comfortable. The, the illusion is comfortable. And, and the whole point of science is to find those places where you can adjust the yeah. levers. So, and so to say, yes, science is real, but also so is all the random effects. And you can't be... You know, there are things that science won't work with. In fact, science is kind of a little, you know, it's intentionally isolated to things that are predictable. Right. But you well, say in places where you can have controls. Yes. Well, right. And uh, I, I see the desire for scientific management, mm -hmm. but it turns out 
in the real world of business and people and communication and these really complex structures, having the ability to have an actual control, controlled experiment in business, it, I've never seen it like actually be effective. So when I was at Irvine studying physics after I'd left Pomona College for reasons, um, one of the classes I had to take was statistical mechanics. And in statistical mechanics, you go, okay, well, we got all these molecules and they're bouncing against each other. And it's all random and you can't deal with it on that level. But there's this general trend that you can go, oh, well, there's this, you know, there's lower pressure over here and higher pressure over here. And so as the molecules bump against each other, they have this kind of trend towards moving to the lower pressure area. And it's a whole different way of looking at things. But if you're wanting to say, oh, no, we can predict everything, you're going to be you're going to be in trouble. And I think that kind of thing might work here where we say, well, if you have a low, well, it might even be pressure. Say, okay, so you have a lower pressure. Over here, we have a, an area where people are trying to control things and they've got, you know, deadlines and, you know, certain expectations that have to be met and all of these issues. And that's a higher pressure area. And then you have this lower pressure area where you say, oh, well, you know, we can't control that. We can't control the little individual interactions between the molecules, but we can create an environment where creativity is more likely to happen and productivity is more likely to happen. And I think the molecules are going to migrate in that direction. Slow. I mean, I think they already are slowly. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're focused on the individual, you know, micromanaging the individual interactions, which even then, you know, those are just molecules bouncing against each other. And so you're standing there going, I'm controlling this interaction. Yeah. Eventually, you're going to wake up and go, wow, where do all the molecules go? They're, they're over there in that lower pressure area. So you're advocating for thermodynamic management. Yes, you heard it here first, folks. Thermodynamic management or, or statistic, yeah, statistical mechanics management or something yeah. like that, where you're, you're seeing the big picture, which is, yeah, we can't control those interactions, but we can create an environment where interactions are more likely. I mean, and people have tried to do that. Like when I visited uh, Git, uh, GitHub, GitHub yeah. before this was a couple of years before it had been acquired yeah. by, um, Microsoft. by Microsoft. Um, they had just built their new building and that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to solve that problem. You know, the problem of, you know, how do we just create this space creative space molecules to do what they want molecules to do what they, what they're, what they're going to do anyway. Yeah. But you know, the micromanagement is, is kind of like, oh no, this collision's going to happen. I got to get in between and you know prevent it from happening. And you know, and it's like, well, it doesn't seem to work. Yeah. Um, so they were doing that, and they were also trying to you know, logically because they were all about remote. They were saying, how do we bring, how do we make the remote worker as important as the person in the room? Yeah. Which maybe you can't. I mean, maybe the you know. GitHub but, and Heroku have certainly done a really good job of that, but it was an intention. Sure, it was an intention. And maybe one of the things that, you know, 
that maybe that's another illusion of control. Maybe mm. you need to look at it and go, because we're humans and we react to a person who's in the room with us, um, that level is not possible. We have to accept that, but we can do something else once mm -hmm. we accept it. Yeah. As long as we're trying to control it, we're not accepting it. We're not accepting the world the way it is. Yeah. And so by doing that, you go, all right, well, maybe we need to push the envelope or we, we need to provide something else in addition for the remote person mm -hmm. or I don't know, somehow, somehow change it in that direction to try and help their interactions be better. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one thing I went to the GitHub office, uh, that new one shortly after they built it as well. Mm -hmm. I think I interviewed with them or something. Oh yeah. Um, so I think that's the reason why I went there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, I remember one of the things that they said they do is anytime a conversation starts to happen in person, they would, they culturally, they would, someone would usually remember, Oh, we need to take this online. And so to avoid the water yes. cooler conversations being location specific, right. they would always, as soon as a water cooler conversation spun up, they would take it into a Slack room or something like that. So that others could be part of that water cooler conversation mm -hmm. as well, who weren't physically there. And I thought that the cultural, uh, acknowledgement and reinforcement of that, um, was a really good thing for, for their culture. And I like the attempt. Yes. I remember now that you, you said that, that, that they said that they tried to do that and I like the attempt, but there's something in me that goes, okay. I mean, I have ideas that are in the moment. And if, if I have to stop and go, all right, mm. let's set up a Slack room mm. for this. I mean, it yeah. kind of evaporates yeah, can, the spontaneity of yeah. it. And yeah. I wonder if they developed ways to, to help with that. Like, mm -hmm. like if you're the one that's in, feeling inspired and has something, maybe someone else can be like the translator of that into a Slack room or, you know, be the narrator into a Slack room or something. I, I wonder mm -hmm. if they developed ways to, to deal with that or if, or if, maybe they just decided it wasn't working and they don't have that particular cultural element anymore. It'd be interesting to know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause yeah, I mean, that's a reasonable first cut, right. but then to be able to see all of the, the issues around it rather than go, uh, we've made this decision. Here's our solution. And, and this is, you know, this kind of comes back to that. Um, when I took the holacracy training, that was really what I came away from it with was if you do this heavy front loaded decision, you don't want to revisit that. And, and oh, I've heard that in a lot, a lot of times, like we decided this, sure. we spent a lot of time yes. making this decision. And so we're not going to revisit it. It's the right decision. Well, it's like the, um, the plastic bag ban here in Crested Butte. And it's like, there's a lot of data that shows that banning plastic bags is actually worse in a whole bunch of ways. But I, and I, you know, I sent this data to several of the people on the town council and that was the response. It was just like, Oh yeah, but we did this. So what are you going to do? Right. We can't, we can't just go back and change it again. I mean, all the, they should have the, done smaller experiments, <laughs> right? Smaller experiments do feedback. Well, and the, the problem is that, 
it looks good on the local level, but they're not seeing the bigger picture. And the person who suggested it initially just saw some YouTube videos and thought, oh, plastic is bad, so we'll ban it and that will fix things. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, well, and that sort of belief that, I, I think that um, comes into play again, that belief that, oh yeah, we're, we're controlling all of the factors. That's right. And there, there's always all of these other factors that you can't see until you try it. But, and if you commit, then you're stuck. Yeah. And so what the holacracy thing was doing was it was say, okay, we have a, we have an issue here. Um, let's hear suggestions to fix it. Um, okay. Let's look at this one. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, any, are there any, um, you know, things that we know would be bad to do this. Now we don't know if it's going to work, but if somebody has had experience doing this and they know it's absolutely not going to work, then let's choose something else. So it's a, it's a lightweight process. And then later, if there's another problem with it that develops because we chose that, we'll bring it up again. Yeah. And so this ability to bring things yeah, up right. again and not that, oh, well, we made it's the heavyweight like the decision. XP agile version of decision making. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. But except that I think XP and agile were trying to deal with a communication issue mm. first and foremost. Yeah. At least that's what they they declared. Yeah. Did I ever tell you I got invited to the original um I remember Agile that. meeting. Yeah, I told you yeah. that. And then I just like, well, you're not paying my way. No, I'm not going to go. Uh, well, you'd be much more better equipped to attend that meeting today. Oh, and, I think. and I, oh, and the mindset has changed. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I used to be much more narrow on yeah. these things, but now I absolutely would be easily talked into something like that. I, that sounds really interesting. I want, and especially well. even the fact that, oh, it's not a conference. It's not uh the fact that I wasn't getting paid for it would actually be a plus. Yeah. So, huh. for sure. Maybe we should develop like the agile manifesto, but our thermodynamic management manifesto. <laughs> Need to have a cooler name. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. It needs to be. Yeah. I mean, we, we have to understand our audience. Here. We live in a post agile world. Post agile. Yes. <laughs> That's when you can't think of a good name, you just put post, post on, on whatever something. you're replacing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think understanding your audience and what they're able to do. And this is why I think C++ and Java were successful is because they're going, we're providing a migration path and Kotlin too. Mm -hmm. We're providing a migration path for this audience to allow them to adapt to it. And because, I mean, this is even bigger when we say, okay, premise one you can't control ever, anything. I was like, what? That's going to be a lot of, uh, yeah. that's a hard struggle. And in fact, tough. I think it would have to be done. The idea I found, because I've taken a lot of workshops and all kinds of things. And I found the most effective ones that have the greatest impact on my preconceived notions is where Nobody starts by saying, I'll, hear, I'll explain to you why your preconceived notions are wrong, et cetera. Huh. It's like you do an exercise and hmm. then it pulls the rug out from under you somehow in a way that you can't deny. Um, I, I, one of the most effective ones was Gerald Weinberg, who's unfortunately 
dead for a year and a half or so. Mm. Didn't even know it happened till somebody explained it to me. And um, I took one of his workshops, which weirdly, because he used to actually spend summers up here in Crested oh. Butte. Huh. It was another huh. weird Crested Butte nexus thing. Wow. And um, so he would have these workshops, which were called, um, I don't remember what they were called, uh, but this basic one, one of the biggest parts of it was uh, that you would do this exercise where you created a company and the company was doing something silly. Like, I think you had Scrabble letters and you would mine the, you know, there were rules. So you had uh -huh. to mine the letters and then you'd make words and then, you, and then the words would be turned into poems and that was your product to sell. And you would organize however you wanted to organize and people naturally fell into sort of a high. So we'll have the miners yeah. down here and we'll have the, we'll have the marketing people and the people who create the poems. And then we have management of course, who, who controls all these things. And the, the speed, cause this was like a one day at most exercise and the speed at which people reproduced the structures that they knew and that those things went off the rails was phenomenal because like we had, I think in one of the groups, we had somebody who just, you know, burst into tears and quit the company. It was so traumatizing for that person that they just, they're going, I, I'm quitting. I'm not doing this anymore. And it was, and it was like deeply, uh, wow, a deeply emotional sad. thing for them. And then the other companies universally, they reproduced the worst working conditions that you'd ever been in. I mean, the miners would go on strike and, you know, all kinds of things. And, and to see that it was like, that was a great way to pull the rug out from this idea that you can control things. Because yeah. all these people who were coming to this workshop were ones who had, they were trying to do things better. They had researched, they had, you know, gone to school about this and everything. They, they had the answers that were given to them and they were applying those and they weren't working. And I think everybody came away from that, which is what the heck just happened? Huh. I mean, that thing haunted me for years. I mean, huh. it kind of still does. It's yeah. like you go back and you just go, I don't First know what happened. You saw your illusion of control. And well, and I didn't even understand that that's what it was. Yeah. I It took me this long to go, oh, I think that's what was going on. We all had, I mean, everybody was coming to this workshop to be taught. How do you, how do you manage better? And management is the idea that, well, we're controlling these things to somehow make the company better, whatever that means. And none of it worked and it failed super fast. Like you couldn't, you couldn't go, oh, well, if you just give it time, you know, it's because it just went right there and everybody was unhappy about being in this company. It all sucked. It was terrible. And, and so you come away from that and I, that is exactly what they were doing. Yeah. And in fact, they had people, they had um, like coaches, not just Gerald and his, and, um, and the, and the coaches would go around and they would tweak things. They would, right. they would throw little monkey wrenches yeah. in it to make sure that it went totally off the rails. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was brilliant. And the thing is you couldn't come away with, you know, it just scrambled your brain. You couldn't go, you couldn't, you didn't have a grasp on anything. All you could see was, Oh my gosh, this failed so badly. And then you begin to look at, companies and their attempts to say, oh yeah, we, we have all these MBAs, they know what they're doing and they, they're having this new 
management thing that we've, you know, there are books that talk about how you bring new management structures and, you know, how you introduce them into to the companies. And in it's a like, very controlled way. In, oh, well, yeah, in a way so that it disrupts things. But, but now we have the new management system, which will work. I mean, my first experience when I was working at Fluke, um, the founder had died and his son had gone to Harvard Business School. And I think we went to, we went through, it was like almost every six months we had a new business structure system or whatever. Oh, that didn't, I mean, I guess now to their credit, they kept trying new things. I mean, that's one thing, but, but they kept expecting first them to you can't work. control things in the way you want. Control again. again, control again, control, control again. Yeah. So really, and I mean, even now, there's so many things in my life that I still have this unconscious belief that I'm able to control things. Even though every experiment I try, the better way is to try and, well, let go of that idea of control and see what happens. I mean, again, like when you stuck the thing on your forehead, it's like, cause you were out of control. Yeah. You go, I can't deal with this. I'll just do, what can I do? Oh, I'll just stick it on my forehead. Yeah. And suddenly you're creative. So creativity comes when you give up that illusion of control yeah. and and outcome and schedule and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So, but to to go back, to circle back to the idea of hiring, this idea that uh, let's just take the people who are interested in it, draw their names out of a hat and then have a feedback system. Oh, but can't we do some stuff up front? You know, we, we, there's still some control we can have. I mean, there's obviously some things you can do. And if you really think about it, you go, no, those things all have serious failings that mean that we are excluding people who may be the best possible person for that job. Yeah. But will it scale? Actually, I mean, the way, as I'm thinking about this, because I'm thinking about the, the you know, uh, area under the curve as being all the effort that you put into this, I'm thinking that we may actually, I mean, think about it. If you go, okay, we're not going to do the interview process or anything. We're just going to draw a name out of that. Wow. How much energy have you just recovered from that process that doesn't work? And then you have, oh, you know, little feedback cycles somehow. I mean, we still need to figure that out, yeah. but you have these feedback cycles and those I think are much less energy. And, um, you know, so we end up saving a huge amount of energy by giving up that idea of control. Control does require a lot of energy. Cause you keep, you know, you go, Oh, this isn't working. We got to, we got to nail this down. I mean, you're, you're, you're playing whack-a-mole because uh, you, you don't want to, the thing you don't want to let go of is the idea that you can control things. And so you go, oh, that's got to control. Whack that, whack that, whack that. And pretty soon you're whacking all of these things. And, but you're holding on to this idea of control. And then you think, what if I gave up that idea of control? Then I wouldn't have to whack anything. I would just go, all right, we'll just... Yeah. We'll just select, you know, it, it's random anyway. So let's just, let's go with the randomness. Just succumb to the randomness mm -hmm. of 
but, world. <laughs> but it's also, I feel like maybe very liberating because you go, oh, okay. I don't have to pretend that I can control everything. I'll just, we'll Free just be me. We'll just do it a different way now. And I feel like maybe, well, in a sense, that's what happens at the Winter Tech Forum is that we just go, yep, we, we don't have any upfront planning. We don't, and a normal conference goes, well, how will people know to come to the conference? Because if you don't have the list of speakers and what they're talking about, then they won't know if it's a good conference or not. And you go, yep, they won't, because you don't know anyway. You know, you go to that conference. The first time I went to, <clears throat> there was the Go conference that Luciana wanted to uh, go, yeah. go to. And we went down to it and everything was controlled and it was dull as dishwater. Yeah. And it was like, you're going, I could have just, all it was, was the presentations. Yeah. And they recorded them. I could watch them on YouTube. There was nothing happening in between it. I mean, they had a party or whatever, but those parties are always so contrived. Yeah. You know, there's nothing, you really have to work to connect with people. Yeah. And, and it's noisy and it's like all sorts of weird, nonsensical things going on. And after you've seen how, say, the Winter Tech Forum works, it's so disappointing to go to a conference where there's no, there's nothing, or or actually the there was the TEDx conference in uh, Denver that I went to, and all of these interesting people were coming together, and their only focus was on, in fact, the reason to have the audience was so that the presentation looked good and the it would could capture all the people and 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 they would do things to get to wire to get the people wired and also it gave the speaker a focus mm. but there was not they didn't do anything with the people i mean yeah they had a few gatherings and everything but they could have done so much more mm. to connect these people and all kinds connect of connect them and create create uh, new ideas for creativity like yeah. the winter tech forum yeah mm -hmm. yeah exactly but it was their, I think what happened was they, they looked at that and they go, oh, that would be too much work because we have to control everything. Yeah. And they couldn't just right. let it, let things happen. We don't know how to let things happen. Yeah. It, it takes, I mean, the first few years that we did the Java Posse Roundup and, and things before that, I was sure that this year it's going to fall flat on its face because we don't control things. We haven't, don't have enough control. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're out um, of time. We're out of time. Okay. We have to control this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, I think it has a natural stopping point. I just, yeah. You know. Thanks for listening. Yes. Thanks for listening.